Hey everyone, it's Beverly Hallberg. Welcome to a special pop-up episode of She Thinks, your favorite podcast from the Independent Women's Forum where we talk with women and sometimes men about the policy issues that impact you and the people you care about most. Enjoy. everyone. I'm Julie Gunlock, Director of IWF Center for Progress and Innovation, and I'm joined here today by Dr. Richard Williams. Dr. Williams is a good friend of mine. We've worked together over the years on a number of regulatory issues. Currently, Dr. Williams is working on a book about the Food and Drug Administration, which I'm very much looking forward to reading. He's also serving on the Board of Trustees for the International Life Sciences Institute, the EPA Science Advisory Board, and he's board chair of the Center for Trust in Science, which is a great new organization. And, and Dr., you're, on the, you're, you're here with me now. I, I do want to talk to you a little bit about that. But before we get to that, let me finish this impressive resume up. Dr. Williams is a 27-year, uh, had a 27-year career. Um, at the FDA. He was the chief social scientist at the Center for Food Safety and Applied Nutrition. He was also formerly the vice president of the Mercatus Center, which does excellent work in this in this area, at, and that is at George Mason University. And he continues there as a senior affiliate scholar. Dr. Williams is a former professor of economics at Washington and Lee University, and he has been published everywhere, including the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, and the Chicago Tribune. So thanks for coming on, Richard. I'm really, I'm really glad to be talking to you. It's been a while. Yes, it has. It's good to be here. So today we're going to be talking about an issue that I think a lot of Americans don't really know about. First of all, they don't know about, but they also don't know how fraught this issue is. Um, and, and that is the dietary guidelines. Um, so these are the people, as I like to say, who tell you how to eat and what to eat and what to avoid. They're sort of the nannies of the nutrition world, um, at least at the federal government level. So um, these guidelines were just updated in 2020. Uh, the people who actually decide these things um, is what's called the Dietary Guidelines Advisory Committee. It's an independent advisory board. They're made up of scientists and medical experts, and they're appointed by two federal agencies. Um, and so they're the ones who issue these guidelines, which are renewed every five years. Um, so, Richard, let's let's get started here. The guidelines were just passed by Congress. I think they I think they have to be um, ultimately passed by Congress. But maybe you could give us a little primer on the history of the dietary guidelines, what we've seen in the past, um, and and maybe a, a, a quick um, sort of summary of what the latest guidelines say. Sure. I mean. Uh you know, the, the American government giving us advice on what to eat really goes back all the way back to 1894 when the USDA's Office of uh, Experimental Station first wrote the first dietary guidelines. And since then, a number of things has, ha has happened. But the big thing that happened was uh, Bobby Kennedy went out into the United States and went to various areas around the United States and found that people were actually hungry, were starving in America. And that caused a huge stir. And about uh, that went on for about 10 years until finally the Senate took it up. And George McGovern had a Senate Select Committee uh, group put together to study basically starvation in America. And, but they quickly changed to talk about diet-disease relationships. And this was primarily uh, because of a Harvard nutritionist whose name was Mark Hegstead, and he's generally considered to be the father of Dietary Guidelines Committee. 
and he was responsible for the first recommendations that came out in 1980. And so there were four big recommendations. First was to decrease dietary fat. That's total fat, all kinds of fat, to uh, less than 30% of calories. It was also to increase carbohydrates to between 55 and 60% of calories. He has the Americans decrease dietary cholesterol and also decrease sugar and salt. Well, those, most of those uh, recommendations have persisted until today. They're still the same recommendations with several uh, exceptions. The first is total dietary fat. We've now determined that dietary fat isn't that important. It's really the type of fat you consider, and even that uh, is problematical. Um, there's some consideration now that we're eating too many carbohydrates, but we've also said dietary cholesterol, as opposed to the cholesterol in your body, uh, is not important. Right. So there's been a, n- a number of reversals over the years, but then there's also the foods, um, and this is what confuses most Americans. So you go back in time, and for a while back in the 80s, eggs were considered to be horrible. They were a source of dietary cholesterol. Right. The egg industry was just about destroyed over this. Now they're considered right. to be a superfood. Yeah, you know, nuts, Richard, I just want to—I just—I don't, I don't mean to inter—I don't mean to interrupt here, but sure. I have to tell you that that my father is so angry about the roughly 20 or so years I've written about this about my poor father who my dad loved breakfast and he loved omelets in particular. And he, when I told him that the dietary guidelines committee had said, and I'm, I mean, talk about the understatement of the, of, of, of all time, you know, uh, cholesterol is no longer a nutrient of concern. And this sudden sort of, I would say, um, you know, the, the, the Renaissance of the egg, right. (laughs) The, you know, the egg getting its <laughs> reputation back. Um, my dad is still angry that he used to suffer through those egg white omelets and those all those products that were supposed to mimic eggs. You know, so it, it, I, I just had I just have to give a shout out to my dad and 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 because there really are. I mean, the, these people. You said that it almost destroyed the egg industry. You had a lot of miserable people for years. You know, avoiding eggs. Eggs are so great, and they're so cheap, and they're so convenient, and they're so nutrient dense. That I just want to pause a little bit because if we're talking about dietary guideline gaps, I would say that's just about the biggest one. Yeah, that one was huge, and there's so many other ones. You know, nuts were the same way; they were considered terrible. Now they're considered power foods, super foods. And then, of course, one of the big ones was, you know, when they went after animal fats, and that's not just the dietary guidelines, that's that's also the consumer activists right. and said, oh, animal fats are bad. Then we got trans fatty acids, which were, right. you know, much, much worse. <laughs> right. So, yeah, it, it goes on. Um, and and th- these controversies are with us today. And there are reasons why. Uh, and even in this, this first 1980 committee, the Senate just said, we don't, we don't think you have the science behind this to make these recommendations. That is true today as well. Well, this is the thing. This is, this is where we are today. You know, and again, just reaching back into the history, um, you know, I, I call myself, I say that I'm part of the snack well generation, and I didn't make that up. I, think so, I, I, I don't think I did. I think I've heard that before. But, you know, I was part of, you know, in high school, it, and, and, you know, even before that, it was, and I mentioned my dad, you're not eating eggs. It was like, try to cut the fat, cut the fat. And so you saw that that suddenly in the marketplace where there were snack wells, which were these hideous, sorry, I shouldn't, I shouldn't be too mean, <laughs> but I think they're, I actually think they're still sold. I don't know for sure, but, you know, and what you would do is you would sit down. I can still remember sitting down with my roommates in college 
and we would eat sleeves of these things. You know, it's like, it's like Girl Scout cookies. They came in kind of these sleeves and, you know, I'd eat like 15 snack wells and not really thinking, I thought, oh, well, it's health food essentially because it didn't, it, they were lower in fat. You were still getting calories. You were still getting a whole bunch right. of stuff you shouldn't be eating. And, and so, um, so, you know, I really, this really, I really love this subject because I feel like I, <laughs> I've been a victim of the bad information. And obviously before that, I, you know, I grew up with the, the pyramids where, you know, you had certain things on top and then the biggest category was carbohydrates. And now, you know, how many people are on the keto diet, you know, trying to cut carbohydrates altogether and frankly having, and I'm not here to, to, I've tried, I've tried keto. I did lose significant amount of weight on it, weight on it. Um, and I'm not trying to boost that, but I'm saying, you know, it's amazing what I, you know, I've been alive for 40 some years and I have seen, I, I'm a personal example an actual real world example of someone who, you know, it's impacted, it's impacted me and it's impacted a lot of, a lot of Americans. It's impacted people world, worldwide. But I'd like to ask you with these 2020 guidelines, you know, you mentioned like this, the problems persist. So I always feel like when I, when the dietary guidelines come out, it's sort of like one of those fashion magazines where it's like, this is in this year and this is out this year. So tell me with the latest 2020 guidelines, what are the big ins and what is, what are the big outs, or was there not much change at all? Well, certainly, you know, going back to snack wells, you know, there were women waiting on trucks. They just they didn't want to wait till they got in the uh, supermarkets. <laughs> they were so afraid they wouldn't get them, uh, right. and 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 that is that is a problem. I think people are realizing that what happened was the fat that Mark Hegstead and others recommended back in 1980 that you cut back fat, and now it's mostly focused on saturated fat was replaced by sugar. And, and, and yep. you know, I don't know that it can be proved, but it, it might be a reason why, you know, 77% of Americans now are either obese or overweight. And why um, we've had diabetes go through the roof. So almost yep. half of the country now either has prediabetes or diabetes. So yep. we can blame that. I think, I think the dietary guidelines have to take some, uh, you know, responsibility for that. Now, this one, I think the big thing that has come out of this is where in 1980 they said that sugar should be less than 15% of calories. It's now down to 6%. And I think yeah. most Americans are not doing that at all. I mean, they're way, way above that. So I think that's one of the big ones. Uh, clearly for me, the alcohol one was almost humorous. That was oh, so yeah. bad. But that's another one. Um, and other than that, I think alcohol. they haven't changed that much. Okay, well, let's talk a little bit about that al that alcohol recommendation. I actually wrote an op-ed on this. It was in Real Clear Science um, in October, or Real I'm, I'm sorry, Real Clear, Clear Health in October, and I talked about so there are 2020 recommendations actually um, really make well. I shouldn't even say uh, I shouldn't qualify that they make no distinction between a man and a woman. So tell me, I, I'm sure you know about it, and I'll let you answer this, but tell me about the new, quality, the new guidance on alcohol consumption, then this is part of the 2020, um, you know, guidelines. Well, I mean, one problem is the process. A couple of people, that, you know, what they do in the Dietary Guidelines Committee is they break it up by, by particular subjects, so, and then they put several people on each subject to go back and do research. Well, in this case, it was four people. Two of them were pretty much had a history of alcohol, anti-alcohol activism, yeah, which is yeah. not what you want on the Dietary Guidelines right. Committee. You want people who are 
had maybe knowledgeable, but at least indifferent. So they ended up saying that um, actually for women, it was a half a drink a day or men one drink and they rounded it up for women so they could have a whole drink. Meaning if you oh, have more nice than a that. drink, I guess you're, you, you, yeah, then you're an alcoholic, I suppose, for these people. <laughs> but there were, you know, as, as we talked about, look, there's so many problems with this. Men obviously weigh a lot more on average than women. Uh, but in right. fact, men have wildly different weights themselves, as do women. So it's really based, you know, one part of this is on weight. And, and, and not only that, people's tolerance is different. Now, even if you have the same weight. But a, a big thing, and this is a problem with all of the dietary guidelines, not just alcohol. Alcohol is just a bigger problem, is that yeah. when people report how much they eat and drink, they don't tell oh, the they, truth. They lie. So right, right, for right, food... Right. Yeah, well, they lie or they, you know, they can't remember. But for food, they don't, um, they don't report. Sixty percent of people don't report eating enough food to stay alive. And so the researchers will just fill in the blanks and go, well, they must be eating something else. Which means, and this okay. is re- this this is a data that's used for four out of five studies. Which means just all of these diet disease studies are really bad. Now think about alcohol. If you lie about how much food you eat and you're talking to a researcher and ask you how much you drink a day, you're going to lie a whole lot more about that. Oh, Nobody yeah. wants to say, well, you know, I went out and had five martinis last night. Right? They're going to say I had yeah, one I martini. Thought- so all the studies on alcohol are going to basically be based on a much higher alcohol uh, content than actually was consumed. Yeah, yeah, and that's that's part of that's part of the problem with these self-reported studies. Tell me a little bit about what is. I mean, you're kind of you're edging around it here, but you're talking about nutrition studies, and I mean that's a really unreliable field, correct? Well, I go back to uh, I was in a meeting with the obesity working group, um, and the com- and commissioner at the time was uh, Les Crawford. Uh, and and we started talking about nutrition, and he just sort of stopped and looked at everybody, and he said. Nutrition, that's what some people call non-science, but I just shorten it to yeah. nonsense. And, of course, <laughs> the nutritionists were furious over that. Um, but I think you're, he was on right. to something back then. You're right. So that, this is, you know, I, I, look, I, I, would, I, I, I go to my doctor, and I don't want to talk. I want him, you know, it's funny. It's like, you know, I, I'm, I tend to be someone who wants to please people, and I don't want to tell my doctor that, you know, I – I ate this, you know, I had some, I had some Reese's peanut butter cups over the holiday, whatever, you know, and, and so, so much because we can't lock people in rooms, we're not rats. Um, and right. we can't sort of dose, we can't, I mean, I'm, I know there are some studies where people literally shut themselves in a room and they're, you know, that they need to set, but they, they can't do that for four years. And so for these long term right. studies, they rely on self-reporting and self, and you're kind of talking about that, that self-reporting is just, inherently unreliable it's it pretty much gets down to junk science you can't control for all the confounders the other things that people ate or they did um and you simply don't know so a lot of what you get um are correlational studies meaning something seems to track with something else but it may not have anything to do with whether or not it caused a problem and there's so many studies for example just this is this is one i find this is not just uh nutrition epidemiology but but mostly in the science field, if you find something doesn't cause something, for example, if I came out and I, I said that potatoes do not cause uh, problems with obesity, which is another issue, uh, that's called either a negative study, if I find that you know they actually cause you not to be obese, right. or a null study. 
you can't get those yeah. printed because journalists don't want right. them. It doesn't, you know, garner them any news, right. uh, and and it doesn't it doesn't help the researchers either because they need positive studies to get funding and 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 to get promotions. So if you have a bunch of studies and it says, well, I think this causes that, but then there's a equal number or more studies that say no, it doesn't. You'll never hear about no, it doesn't. So then you try to put all these studies together and you're missing all these negative and null studies, which, which then leads us to this problem where you see scientists just disagreeing vehemently uh, about nutrition. And it's because a lot of it is just there's a lot of data, a lot of studies that are just missing. We, they don't have them. Yes. And, th- and what's so sad, though, is that these studies, you just mentioned, you know, how you can't get those printed because they don't care. But what does get printed is the one. And I just, I, I wrote a blog a couple, I think it was in, in October about this new study that comes out and says that, you know, you shouldn't even sniff coffee if you're pregnant, right? Well, it turns out that, <laughs> you know, this guy is a noted, he's like, he, he has a, he, he has a thing about caffeine and he is an, he's literally known as an act, an anti-caffeine activist. And um, and so he publishes this study, right, in this journal. And then now a group, I thought this was wonderful, something like 20 female medical professionals wrote a joint letter to the journal because it was a reputable, it wasn't, a, uh, it wasn't one of these predatory journals. It was actually a reputable journal that printed this. And they wrote to the journal and said this should be retracted or, the, or you should be more cautious about the things that you publish. And because this was an, this is an anti-caffeine activist and he's publishing things that are going to scare an already very vulnerable population, right? But meanwhile, okay, and that's all great, which there was like no, hardly any news coverage of those women writing that article but, or writing that letter, but there were about a thousand, you know, headlines. You know, the Daily Mail had a different headline for 10 days straight about how caffeine's killing babies and women, pregnant women. And so um, that's, that's also a problem is the hunger for these scary stories, scary studies from the media, which whether or not it's true, it does affect people. It does make people maybe change their habits and not always for the better. So what, what is a better direction? What do you suggest, you know, if nutrition studies aren't reliable, if the entire field of, of nutrition that, you know, uh, sort of science, nutrition science isn't really reliable, what is a better direction? Well, so this is one of the things, and this will be pretty much how my book will f- finish talking about um, what are better directions. And, and first of all, let me just start with the Dietary Guidelines Committee. So this is, these are people who are trying to give recommendations for every American. Believe it or not, there's a move afoot now to get dietary recommendations for everyone in the world, if you can imagine how silly that is. Um, so I'm yeah. not sure that the Dietary Guidelines Committee is something that we need to go forward with. I think there's a number of things happening in the food that are very, very exciting. Um, and some of which I think probably makes people nervous. We are creating better foods through genetic engineering, not genetic modification, yes. genetic engineering. We're, we're creating new foods, and I think a lot of people now have tried the Impossible Burger, but most people don't realize yes. that the technology that creates that, which is called precision fermentation, can create any food, any existing food. In fact, it could create new foods that have never existed. So I think you know these new foods, how we can manipulate them, they'll be safe, um, they're better for the environment, but we can actually we can create them in such a way that, that whatever the nutritional profile we desire, ultimately, uh, that's what we'll have. So this is all that's new, and, and I think it's exciting for people. I think the other thing is 
we can't rely on people trying to, you know, enforce them to learn nutrition and to understand the ridiculously impossible uh, food labels. So what we're seeing now is we're seeing that people are developing new devices that's going to personalize nutrition for you, and it's going to look at everything and and uh, and basically put it all together. So if you think about what affects your health besides what you eat, it's your microbiome, it's your health status, it's the the drugs that you take, the dietary supplements, how much you exercise, what your age is, what your sex, your stress level, your epigenetics, and mo- most importantly probably is your preferences. If you put all that yeah. together, and this is what a lot of people are trying to do, you can't, you don't, people aren't going to have to read labels anymore. Their smartwatch or whatever is going to say, here's what I suggest you eat for lunch. And here's how much you should eat. And that is going to change everything, I think. And that leads to where I think the future is, and it's precision nutrition, meaning nutrition for you. So when you eat your family meal, maybe you'll make it with a 3D printer. I don't know. But but it's really (laughs) about um, things that will work for you, for your weight, and for your particular health conditions. And to me, this is very, very exciting news. It is very exciting news, and I have said for years, well, not for years, I've said it my whole life, I swear, the minute I could start talking, I started complaining about the carbs in things. <laughs> How can they put a man on the moon and not remove carbs from pasta? I do not understand this. This is something <laughs> that I will never understand. And I hope, and that is why I'm so excited about innovation um, in food, because I do see a future where obesity and, and you know, and, and really <laughs> – and, and losing weight through the sheer through sheer will, um, which which if if you you know for for those that are listening that that have ever tried to lose weight, it is hard. It is not easy, and sometimes it's nearly impossible because of what you mentioned because of other issues, your genetics, um, your body makeup. There's other things that it, uh, that impact you know um, those issues, and so I I really am thrilled to hear about these innovate you know in it, these 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 innovations. Um, coming out, and I really look forward to reading your book. Do you have a title for your book yet? Um, I don't. I, I've tried several titles out, um, and and you know what? If there's anybody listening, um, but it's uh, I can just tell you the general um, tenor of the book is is about sort of my history at FDA and and how FDA makes decisions about food safety and nutrition and how those decisions really haven't been working. Um, most yeah. people know that we're going the wrong direction on nutrition. Very few people know that we've made no progress in the last 40 years on food safety. So I'm coming, hopefully, with some positive suggestions for how we can improve on that. Well, I really, I do look forward to the book. Before I leave, I do want to ask you one more question, and this is about this new center. You are the chairman of the board. You're the board chair of the Center for Trust in Science, and um, I've been following them. I'm really excited about this new center. Tell me a little bit about it. Sure. This is kind of this is a new area for me. Um, but as you know, um, one of the ways that we sort of regulate compounds, um, other than regulation, is through court cases. And so yeah. there have been a number of court cases where the science is extremely weak. And I think for me, the, probably the, mo- the most current one, the one most people know about, is glyphosate, which is otherwise known or, as this is Roundup. 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 Yeah. yeah, yeah. And um, the EPA, the FDA, all sorts of federal agencies said this is not a carcinogen. But then yeah. there's one organization, IARC, who yeah. you know is the part of the World Health Organization, said, well, it, we think it's a probable carcinogen. 
Well, they don't, yeah. they don't look at how much people are exposed to. So that's the problem. Right. The other problem is in, in this country, we have 94 federal district courts. And so if you find yeah. one or two that uh, with juries that are sympathetic, you get a big uh, payout. And eventually companies say, uh, you know what, I can't, I can't fight this. Uh, we're just going to settle. Right. Now, I'm not here to say that whether I know whether Roundup is or isn't a carcinogen. I just know that something's gone wrong if that's the way we're making the decisions. And yes, so what and Center is, for Truth and Science is, we are completely apolitical. We don't care. But what we want to do is find a way to get the best possible science into the courtrooms. And so that's the goal. This is such, a, uh, this is such an important issue. We follow this quite a bit. The talc issue, Johnson & Johnson settled um, recently as well. And you, can have, you do have some sympathy for the, uh, again, just like uh, Bayer, um, and and which which bought Monsanto, which is the uh, the who manufactures glyphosate, which again is Roundup. Um, you know, the, the, it also settled, um, and you have some sympathy with these companies because they're looking at you know you know insane, you know billions and billions of dollars in payouts again based on dubious science. Um, so you have some sympathy with them, but again, the 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 trade off is consumers who just I mean. You know, a part of me says, fight, 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 because you've got to be, you've got to stand up for your product, your safe product, for the consumers that have trusted you for so long. Um, but again, you know, they're looking, they, they have to weigh this. It's a, ultimately, they are business, and it's a business decision. But the, the person who loses all, in all of this is the consumer who says, oh, no, I'm afraid of talc, or I'm afraid of this. I mean, you know, I have a, I, I have a kid in sports, and we use talc all the time. Um, and, you know, mothers have used talc on their babies for years and years, or decades and generations. And so it's really sad to see this type of thing. So I think this is an excellent um, – I'm so glad to hear about the Center for Trust in Science, um, given the, the, um, the problems we have in science today. So I think that's a great organization. I'm thrilled to, to hear you're a part of it as, as well, Richard. Um, last, last question is, is where can people find you? Um, well, uh, I, am, I have a website, richardawilliams.com. That's probably the easiest way. Uh, um, I'm, I'm also on LinkedIn and, and Twitter, but um, the website, I think, is a start. And hopefully okay, within the well, next month or two, I'll, I'll be putting more information out about my book. Well, you'll have to come back on when your book comes out. We actually have a, um, a book chat series so, um, that where we interview authors of, of newly released books. So we'll have to, we'll have to book you on that. It's our, our sort of you know, Oprah's favorite book club kind of thing. So we'll have to book you on that when your book comes out. Well, that'll be great, and I'll, at that point in time, I guess I can start to tell the stories about what actually happens inside FDA. <laughs> yes, you can, <laughs> after you go into the Witness Protection Program, of course. But, yes, that, we, we, look forward, we, we look forward to that, that sinister insider look. I'm only kidding. It's probably not that, <laughs> not that sinister, but we look forward to that. Thanks for coming on, Richard. Okay, Julie. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode of She Thinks or like the podcast in general, we'd love for you to take a moment to leave us a rating or review on iTunes. This helps ensure our message reaches as many Americans as possible. Share this episode and let your friends know they can find more She Thinks episodes on their favorite podcast app. From all of us here at IWF, thanks for tuning in to She Thinks.